Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Double or Nothing. I'm Michael Frazes, and this is Misha Saul. Misha, how are you doing? Very well, Michael. It's It's been a while. It's late here in Sydney, but we thought we'd hop on the mic. We didn't want to wait and see what's been happening. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pretty big week for a number of people, it seems. Obviously, there's this Qantas scandal that's been in the headlines it's been building up almost for six months and crescendoed in the last week or so to the point where it's headlines of the Daily Mail and Daily Telegraph. Now, what do you think of the whole thing? Yeah, look, it's obviously a lot of folks have spilt a lot of ink on this and spoken a lot. I think I think people have been rightly annoyed. It's really one of those funny things. I think kind of corporate Australia is defined by a lot of cosy cozy deals, there are cozy oligopolies, there are cozy duopolies, there are cozy market equilibria. Australia is kind of a smallish parochial market and so that's probably not super surprising. And then occasionally something just becomes so egregious, it bubbles up and bursts into public consciousness and there's this big kind of a fight back against it. And and this has been obviously one of those times where kind of the whole banning Qatar and something really smelt off about the whole Qantas government arrangement and people were annoyed at Qantas for kind of for taking all the cash, massive transfer of value from taxpayers to Qantas shareholders and the government didn't get an equity stake in the airline like they did in some other jurisdictions. Et so I think it was just, it was a bit of a, a rubber band. It was basically just you know the straw that broke the camel's back. But actually these kinds of things happen all the time. I remember there's probably been more, more recent events, but the more, one more egregious ones is it was when they were building one of the tunnels in, in, in Sydney and then the government decided, this was about, probably about a decade ago, and the government decided because he had made these kind of throughput commitments to, to the investors of the, oh, I think it was the city cross tunnel, cross city tunnel, and, and they basically shut down a bunch of the ancillary roads to force a lot more traffic to go through these toll roads. And the government- I remember that. And the, and the public was like, what is going on? So to be fair, Australians have a really high tolerance for this kind of corporate cozy bullshit, but good on the AFR and, and Joe Aston and the like for really going after after them. And, and it worked. And Alan Joyce is going to ride off into the sunset with a squillion bucks and whatever. But, but at mm. least there was this cathartic release of rage in the public. And it looks like the government's <laughs> still getting and Qantas is still on the ropes. Yeah, yeah. The question is where it goes next. The transport minister just hasn't been able to come up with a, a reason for banning guitar, which clearly means there probably wasn't one. And they're being so careful with their words. The prime minister has said he didn't speak to Alan Joyce, but Alan Joyce has said he, he wrote to the government. So there clearly has been some exchange of views there. And it, it looked the entire time that actually Catherine, it came from the prime minister himself. So I think Catherine King is probably safe while she toes the party line. Whilst they're working together and they're covering for each other, I think her job's safe, no matter how ridiculous she looks, by having to come up with excuse after excuse, none of which really makes sense. It's like you literally see them try, trying on different lines just to see if any of them resonate, but just nothing has been able to stick. But if it was, if, if she does go, then it'll be really interesting because then she'll be able to say, be able to speak a bit more freely and we'll find out what actually went on. But yeah, you're right. I think it was just also the nature of, they ultimately just did the wrong thing by the consumer and pushed it way too far. It's like extraordinarily expensive just to go visit family in Melbourne, Darwin, Perth. And there's not a single, like the whole thing about taking the flight credits, like over 500 mil of flight credits that were just going to be cancelled and add to Qantas's profits. That's a lot of annoyed Australians. It's, it's probably millions of, certainly hundreds of thousands of people that are going to be very angry about that. Um, now, and I'm just so happy to do it. 
I reckon each of these decisions are defensible from a manager perspective and you can understand, but I, I think in, in aggregate, it was just take and take and they kind of trade on this Australian goodwill and on this kind of Qantas branding, national airline branding. And it's so cynical and it's but, so cynical. They, they socialize the, the cost and privatize the upside. And yeah, it's just, it's so slimy. I'm glad that it went back to smack mm. them. I think there was one guiding principle, and that's that they optimize the short term every single time. If they could delay the planes by a year or 10 years, they did it every single time. If they could try and take a little bit of money, they would. If they could like gouge prices a little bit, they could shuff, cancel a few extra flights and save a few dollars, they did. Each one of those things was like optimizing for the short term. But I guess the funny thing is like Alan Jones just stayed too long. He stayed for 15 years. If he stayed for 14 years or 14 and a half years, he would have been, been got away with all those short term decisions. And then the bill would still come due. There's still 15 bill of CapEx. It's still one of the oldest fleets. It's probably one of the most dangerous fleets. Like I think so far no one's really talked about safety, but like the older planes get, the more issues they have. And he outsourced all the maintenance and cut costs wherever he could. The one thing that's missing is this is this safety like side to this as well. You know, that bill's now due and he just stayed a little bit too long, having put off all those long-term costs as far back as he could. But, oh, we shall see. Um, what else is exciting you? Uh, we had an IPO, which we've written about and talked about, but that was exciting. It was also nerve-wracking because very few companies have listed globally in the last year and a half, probably coming up to two years since the market shut soon, a couple of months. But that was okay. It got to its list price. It raised a fair bit of money. It's Curve Beam AI. They basically do medical technology and it's hardware that they've developed. And they did about 11 million bucks of revenue last year with a handful of sales staff. Now they're rolling out globally with Stryker, which is the leader in orthopedics, which is their area. So it'd be really exciting to see what they can achieve in the next two, three years. I had a, we spoke to, a, I had a chat with ProMedicus Management the other day and just reminded that there's some stocks in Australia that seem to be amongst the most richly valued, albeit very good companies, but very richly valued. This is like a seven billion, six, seven billion dollar company with a hundred million <laughs> revenue. Like these are things trading 60, 70 times sales, very tightly held extremely high quality businesses. Fortunes were made on these kinds of things. And we think that Kirby might have some of those characteristics as well. Nice. Good luck. Godspeed. Yeah. What are you seeing in, on your side of things in the private world? Um, I'd say it feels like people are more optimistic and it feels like there are a lot more, you know, there are more processes being run and people expecting to do deals either in public markets or, or private over the next 12 months. So that's probably one theme. We're super busy and, and, and looking at a lot of quality assets. Has um, that changed from last year? Are the company's different? Is the price yeah. different? Yeah, I, I think there's probably a, a build-up. People want to be buying stuff, but people are probably more cautious before. I think there were there was a whole bunch of operational turbulence over the last 18 months as the kind of as the kind of last effects of COVID have wound through, and there was post-COVID kind of operating turbulence. And so I think now that's it's harder to fake stuff. People know where they stand, and I think quality businesses have have shown that they're robust and and resilient and continue to grow. And there's enormous appetite for those kinds of businesses and folks are keen to to put money away in those kinds of businesses and everything else is, is still struggling i reckon mm. yeah i noticed today there was like a lot of cap raisings going through the market so i feel like there's definitely a bit of liveliness in i don't know how long it's going to last with the rate so high it doesn't feel super stable but it seems like everyone's just rushing out to raise as much money as possible there's a really funny and it's this time of year as well like it's, it's starting to warm up a little bit today was sunny and gorgeous <laughs> and First you know 
we're in like September. And so if you're going to get something away, you're really getting at it now. So it feels within the last, the last quarter of the year and people want to do stuff. Yeah. So let me tell you a bit of background about one of these ones that went today. It's called the E-Road. I don't have a dog in this fight, so I can talk about it freely, I think. But basically they had a bid. So th- this thing went from about $6 to say 60, 70 cents. And then they got a bid by one of their major shareholders at $1.30. So the thing basically doubled. I'm just obviously just using very round numbers here. And the manager, the board, sorry, came out and said that it materially undervalued the company, which may or may not be true. It probably is on a revenue basis, but it's also burning a lot of cash and they're They've got a no one knows. opportunity, but boards always say this. No one knows. Yeah, materially undervalued. So they've come out today with a $50 million raise at 70 cents, so almost Brutal. a 50% discount. And it was it looks like it's been stitched up without the participation of that shareholder, who will be allowed to bid in it, obviously, as everybody is. But this major shareholder has gone from bidding to take the company private, and now they're basically being diluted like substantially. And so it's extremely, it's one of the more kind of aggressive, pointy maneuvers I've seen on the SX in a while. But obviously the so fund managers lapped it up. Is it a rights issue? Can they participate uh, to kind of keep this I didn't see if it closed. My, I, my understanding is this, was, this one was going to close fast because the feeling in the market, and again, I don't have any particular inside information, just what I know, but the feeling seemed to be that it was priced way below fair value and it was going to be a money-making deal and it was done for these various reasons, namely that they obviously didn't want to take this bid and wanted to do something else. And the cash was used to pay down, primarily used to pay down debt. So it was an interesting, it was interesting to see that. We looked at it, it was, it was almost tempting. It, it's not really, it's not really our kind of thing, even though it was a tech business, uh, but not growing very fast and, and losing probably too much money in the near term for a company that's not really growing. But the discount was so steep that we we definitely had to have a look at it. But ultimately, I mean, it's just too hairy. That kind of thing's inviting like shareholder challenges and litigation and takeover panel stuff. It just sounds so dodgy. Yeah, and without without knowing what was going on inside, I think it's very hard to do anything. If you want to take, it's extremely illiquid as well. So even if you do make money in the short term, you probably won't be able to sell any serious amount of stock. But you have to know what's going on. So even if when this company bid and the share price rocketed, if you didn't know that management was going to come out and basically do thought that negatively about the bid, that they're going to do this aggressive, steeply discounted raise, you could have been like tripped up by that. And it's just a reminder in those small cap listed companies, there's so many different players and everybody has their own game. So things yeah. look cheap, but there might be somebody there with a plan to do a discounted cap raise and steal the company. Not that I'm suggesting that's happening here, but there might be somebody with that plan and be able to execute it. It's very, sometimes it's just, best to watch and enjoy the spectacle rather than participate no matter how steep the discount is yeah good times but yeah so that's a couple of 50 million dollar raises we saw that got done in like basically a day so there's definitely money flowing around in capital markets again which is at least encouraging nice one thing that's that's been exciting me is that followed i found interesting from the sidelines is the csiro kind of releases this gen cost report, which basically compares the cost of various energy sources. So it kind of goes solar, wind, coal, et cetera. And this is the, it's a big document. CSIRO is the kind of blue chip premier scientific body that kind of does this and it advises the government and the government kind of sets policy based on this. This is official land. And it's been amazing watching it unravel over the last you know, month or so. One Twitter Twitter 
person who I actually happen to know and I've met him 10 years ago through through something else, actually read the report and went through the footnotes and he found a gaping hole. Basically, the costings were done after 2030 and what it had assumed in the kind of cost comparison between the various energy sources, I mean, had a range of assumptions and he's kind of picked a range of holes, but the first one that kind of began unraveling this thing was that they had assumed all this infrastructure build was a sunk cost. So there's something like, you know, call it $30 billion worth of new transmission required to, to, to make solar or wind viable, et cetera. And that was assumed to be sunk. And so it wasn't in the final costings. And so these were really non-trivial amounts. These were massive kind of infrastructure investments that were basically not included in, in, in the final figures. And so this was, he called this out and he asked, and then this was picked up by the Australian ultimately, and, and Claire Lehman at, at Quillette had pushed this. And then CSIRO had responded and basically confirmed this and, and it kept unraveling. And so suddenly the Libs are obviously interested in this because it plays to their base and threats to the government. And so it, people can look up the the details. The the, the Twitter guy is called Aiden Morrison. That's his name, and it's just been amazing to watch a really smart, canny, good faith, technical kind of guy with a couple hundred or a few hundred followers on Twitter or whatever, like mm. irrelevant. Just do the work, do the math, and like unravel like federal labor government energy policy i think it's the early innings like this stuff doesn't turn on a dime but it's raised a lot of eyebrows and it, it feels like it's only get, getting momentum and i think it's important because basically in mining land everyone's very bullish on the energy transition because everyone knows that the energy transition means enormous demand for minerals and i think it hasn't really sunk home with folks that the energy transition is another way of saying the next decade is going to be structurally higher energy costs and, and potentially thereafter, but certainly in the kind of near term. And so you've got this ratcheting effect of higher energy costs for households going up. And the government's obviously talking about green stuff and that's popular and the teals got up, et cetera. But I think we're dramatically underestimating the near term and the medium term political effects of structurally rising energy costs. And I think we're starting to, to see that now. Yeah, do you have a do you have a feel for how does it completely change the story if you include those extra capital costs? I think it does. I think coal is like the cheapest. <laughs> it's this kind of short yeah. answer, you do which is like... not surprising for anyone. But and 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 that's a one can have an honest debate. Like what one can debate, hey, maybe we want to have higher energy costs and emit less carbon. Maybe that's something we want to do. And Australia is obviously irrelevant. If Australia stopped existing. It wouldn't touch, like it'd be a dent, be a dent in kind of global climate change because China's the main driver just by virtue of sheer volume and the size of its economy. But let's say we wanted to do that because we're good citizens or for ideological reasons or whatever. But that's not the debate we're having. The debate we're having is actually this is cheap, this is good for the world, and it's the cheapest option, which is actually, uh, according to the, the underlying figures, not correct. So I mean, I'm not like, a, I don't like really have strong views on, on this, to be honest, and I haven't gone through and corroborated the math. It's just interesting that, that the CSIRO, which is meant to be this independent scientific institution, seems to be ideologically compromised. Yeah, it's definitely one side of all those things are just assumed to be true. But 
you know, I, I sometimes worry, like, are they really going to turn off all the power stations? Because <laughs> yeah. it seems like we're going in that direction. And then there it's was some, wild. could people be that crazy? Look what, but the answer is yes. Look what happened in Germany. They switched off all their nuclear and they ended up having to use like the dirtiest energy and then being totally beholden to Russia and suffering a huge energy spike. Obviously, there were blackouts in South Australia. It's just interesting. I was, I was reflecting on the Qantas thing and it seemed like that example which actually ties into this environmental thing as well is like how much power do politicians have do they have to like walk in step with kind of whatever the national consciousness or certainly the consciousness in their party is thinking because it seems like whenever the in australia anyway whenever you step outside that you swiftly get cut down so there's political decisions to ban Qatar. It was, it was like an unhidden boundary. Qantas could push, Qantas and the government could have a very close relationship and push things extremely far. They stepped outside that boundary and got pinged. And I feel like the environmental movement is very much like that, certainly in the Labor Party. And probably you, you just can't step outside and say certain things, which probably gives a lot of space for somebody to come in, like what Trump did, and just say what people are thinking. But it really shows like the limits of power. I think there's the other example of that would be like Tony Abbott when he came out and did his captain's calls. Yeah. And you think that you run a country, basically that the head of state or the prime minister slash president, generally one of the perks is they get to choose who gets the national honours. That's basically every country, like whoever's running the show, it's like the one bit of power they have. But even he, like he did something that Australians basically thought was ridiculous, which was giving an Australian knighthood to the late Prince Philip. And that was the beginning of the end. It was part of that whole like end of his career or end of his, end of his position in power. So I thought that was interesting like case study over how much power people really have. And it must be a bit of a shock. You spend 30 years to get to the top. You get to the top, you make one decision, which is more or less the same as every other decision, just exercising your power, but just happens to be out of step with the nation. And then there's this huge uproar. I think it can be super random. Like, I, I think... The voters are probably the last thing they're thinking about. There are all these concentrated interest groups that can wield power much more directly than the voters. I think Qantas could be really painful. Like it buys politicians on the cheap with the chairman's lounge or whatever, but then... You can see how effective which, that would be. It's pretty know? funny and random. I don't really get why it's so effective, but I guess it is. And then and then there are all these articles about how when someone doesn't do what Qantas wants, they can be extremely effective in terms of organising boycotts or or other kind of political action. And I think the voter tends to be quite fickle. Like the voter, you know, generally clings on to some random thing like the knighthood thing or whatever, which isn't really against an interest group. It's more of a vibe thing. And as it kind of, and then the media, you know, wants to exacerbate or really press on issues that kind of get them attention and keep the frenzy going and then they pile in, etc. So yeah, no, the, 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 the kind of Political economy in Australia is, yeah, it, 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 it's it's funny between these kind of specific uh, stakeholders and then the, the broader uh, voter population. Mm, absolutely. Um, is there anything else you're looking at at the moment? Not really. From my end, we're sprinting on a few things this year. Personally, I've been, since I always have to interrupt our conversation with a random Misha thing that I've been reading about, whatever, but like I've been deep diving on Australian history over the last little while. So I'm like on book 10 or something. I've, I, I realized I knew nothing about Australian history and I've been deep diving on the US and Britain over the last couple of years, etc. And so now I'm like book 10 or something into Which Australian series? history. Book 10 of what? Of... Oh, just, just general. Like I'm just, just, I'm just the general costumes. roughly. Book 10. Oh, no, like I've read 10 books or something. That's what ah, I mean. As in, so like classics like The Fatal Shore, which I haven't read yet, or, or others, which are basically going from Australia's founding and pre-founding, pre-starting pre as a 
basically a prisoner dump to uh, through to uh, through to the modern day. So I will be pestering you over the next few months about about Australian history. Has anything changed your view in Australia? Uh, a lot. Like I've got a lot of. It's super interesting, and I won't I won't bore you now. But I just had a very murky view of of basically uh, how it all happened and and how we ended up where we are now and i think yeah there's, there's some super interesting pieces and especially interesting to compare to to the us or other kind of comparable settler nations yeah i'm worried about going down any random rabbit hole because it'll sound super random there there are many i could go down but maybe next time maybe next time that yeah cool should we wrap it up there yeah let's wrap up there it's good to speak that to was, you again that was fun